we're going to pick up today with our study of Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, the verse that we're looking at today is actually verse 15, uh, but we'll, we'll read uh, so that we receive it in the proper context. We'll, we'll start reading there with verse 10 through 15, and it says, For it was fitting for him whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we uh, first lift up our praise, Lord, and ask that you would receive our worship this morning. We ask that the things of the world would be put aside, Lord, that you would... um, Offer to us a pardon for our iniquity against you and our failures in the flesh, Lord, that we would instead glorify and praise and worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask this morning, Lord, for forgiveness of sin as we come before you. We ask that the gospel would be proclaimed, that Jesus Christ would be exalted, and that nothing else uh, would interfere, Lord, or distract us from the message of the cross. Lord, we ask for your wisdom and for discernment so that we would see Christ in these scriptures and that we would cling fast to him who is an anchor for our souls. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy, Lord. And we ask that you would bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's go back to verse 14 and and see where we're at this morning. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's the verse that we stopped with last week. And then this week it goes on and says, And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now we've seen throughout our study uh, that began in March uh, with Hebrews chapter 1, we've seen Christ in a new light. We've seen Christ after his resurrection. We see what that means, those veiled mysteries of the gospel that are revealed that God is only speaking through Christ and he's describing the Christ who is not only human but Christ who is divine in nature, the Christ who is God, how he is heir of all things. He's the radiance and he's uh, of his glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. This is a Christ who is supreme. This is a Christ who is, etern- is eternal. This is the Christ who has saved the Hebrew people, the ones who have received this particular epistle. Now, as we look at that, we see the tendency over and over for a man, particularly in the immediate context, the Hebrew people, to stray from the gospel of Jesus Christ, to stray for the, from the salvation that they have in the Savior. And they're often reminded, and that's how chapter 2 began, it says, don't neglect this great salvation. 
hold fast to the message that you've heard, the message of freedom, freedom from the law, freedom from sin, freedom from death, and this is where we pick up. So as we look once again to the scriptures, we do so in search of Christ. This is the Christ who is man, this is the Christ who is Messiah, and this is the Christ who is God. This is the one true living Christ, the I Am. The spiritual man doesn't have to look very far to see Christ as the central theme of the gospel. Christ is the central theme of Hebrews, and he's the central theme of Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he's the the central theme of chapter 2, verse 15 as well. That is, uh, quite frankly, how we should look in the scriptures, and, and that's to see that Christ, to see that Jesus is the gospel, and that is the message being presented this morning. There's no gospel apart from Christ. There is no good news unless it be the proclamation of a Christ who is Savior, who is Messiah, who is Son of God, Son of David, the Christ who is Lord, Christ who is King, Christ who is preeminent, Christ who is in authority and who is reigning and who is able to judge and who is able to pardon. This is the message from the text this morning. It's a resounding message that needs to be heard of every professing Christian, both one who is professing today that Jesus Christ is Lord and the Christian who is matured in the faith, who is almost at death's doorstep, if you will. He needs to hear the very same message that a baby Christian needs to hear, that, that it's Christ crucified for the remission of sins. Hebrews is likewise the gospel. It's written to saints as we see, but its uh, purpose, especially in this portion of the chapter, is so that they would not neglect nor forget what Christ has done. So easily that we would think of this and say this is just an epistle, but the fact is that every book is speaking of this Jesus. Every book is speaking of the redemption of mankind that was purchased by his blood. Therefore, every book, every line, every verse is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, both individually, the verses, and collectively as books. These truths are hidden from the natural man and discerned of the spiritual man. Therefore, there is no way without the Spirit that we can understand that Christ is Savior. Or that man is indeed in need of a Savior unless the Spirit has come, unless the Spirit is bearing witness. This is the simple gospel wrapped up in a complexity of grace that man can do nothing and Christ does everything. So simple, yet so profound, so complex. It's a simple gospel and it's authored by God Himself. It's accomplished by God Himself, and it's applied by God Himself. So what we what we see as as I make such a uh, a simple statement, it's authored by God Himself. The Father has set His will in motion. Everything under His power, everything is working according to His good pleasure. It's accomplished by God. That God being in the person of Jesus Christ as He goes to the cross, and it's applied of God through His Holy Spirit. The truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we receive that spirit, that comforter that is promised. So we look 
and we remind ourselves with verse 14, who is the subject of verse 15? Because verse 15 is a continuation that says, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Who is that he? Well, verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same. That is Jesus Christ. So the the message and the subject of verse 15 is Jesus Christ. He is the one who has partaken of flesh and blood on behalf of mere man. He is the one who is rendering powerless Satan and the power of death that he has, the the hold that he has on the on mankind and in his flesh that he would draw him away from the cross instead of being drawn to Christ. This is what Satan is doing, but he will be failing. He is failing. And it's a a, a great uh, thing that the Spirit has done this morning that if you're here for Sunday school, uh, some of the things that we'll talk about, Brother Pat brought up and mentioned about the law and this is certainly a portion of scripture that contains such information but also we see as brother pat said we see the obituary of satan and it's written here in chapter four uh, chapter two verse 14 it's continued but it says he himself he the christ of his own uh, ability of his own power he might Free, it says. Just stop there on those first few words. The he is the he that is referred to back in verse 14. The only begotten of the Father. The monogenes, the unique one. Jesus Christ in the Greek. Jesus might free. Now, there may be some confusion and there may be some speculation on the term might here as it is translated into the English versions that we read this morning. Uh, But we must keep in mind that we serve a God who is in control, a God who is sovereign, a God who who gives uh, the power to reign to no one else. Uh, He's not thwarted in power. He's not overthrown. He is in control of everyone at every time and in every circumstance. This is the God who is in control that he might bring glory to himself and that he might be ascribed the praise and the credit for every good thing that he brings to pass. Now some with a more biblically disconnected view might disagree with this. They might disagree with the the God that I have just described. The biblical God, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses and Jacob and Isaac and all of the church fathers before us the more Arminian influence would steer us uh, or steer anyone to an incorrect interpretation of this statement one might so wrongly determine that God through the person of Christ has partaken of flesh and blood and suffered the death of the cross a shameful death that he would be resurrected and might free some might just maybe And some people are okay with this view of God and this view of Christ and the salvation that he offers. I would submit to you this morning that that is completely incorrect. And if that is the Christ that we're trusting in, we have a faulty faith. But some men might think this, that he could possibly free man by going to the cross and shedding his blood. The use of the word might here in verse 15 does not insinuate that Christ 
crucifixion is a conceivable salvation, is a possible salvation. It doesn't mean that perhaps there is a chance for redemption. It can't mean that there could be or there, there may be some hope for sinful man. Instead, the use of the word might here means that he would in future free those. That he might, that he would free. This is why Christ has gone to the cross. This is why Christ has taken on flesh. This is why Christ has lived a perfect and righteous life because it was the will of the Father that those who belong to Him, that are given to Him by the Father, would be saved. Would. And we may see by this statement that the context simply begins in verse 14 with the incarnation of Christ. Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself also partook of the same. So we begin here with the incarnation of Christ and we may see by the statement that we're talking about the infinite God who is taking on flesh, the eternal God being Jesus Christ Himself. And this God becomes man, conceived of the Holy Spirit, who upon his assuming of the nature of man, uh, now shares in this flesh and blood. And then it says that he would then go to do so, that he would render powerless death and Satan. That is the point in which he would free mankind. The logical explanation here is that Jesus takes on flesh so that he would conquer death and that Satan uh, and Satan and he would conquer death and Satan so that he could free the children of God. It is not simply just for one motive that he conquers Satan, but he conquers Satan for the sake of humanity. He conquers Satan for the sake of humanity, for the sake of his own glory and power, that he would be ascribed the glory and honor that, and the praise that is due his name for doing such a thing. This is the point. This is the logical explanation for what we see. And I would like to submit to you this morning that it is most certain and most sure uh, use of the word might here that man will ever see. This is the most uh, finite explanation for the word might. This is the most hopeful use of the word might that any man could ever see. That Christ would most certainly accomplish all of this because it is the will of God. Jesus said it many times that he came not to do his own will but the will of the Father who sent him. What sense would it make to do God's will but somehow fail at accomplishing God's work. That's what we would be saying if we would say that might means perhaps. Perhaps he might free. We're saying somehow Christ would do God's will and Christ would die on the cross. Um, you know, and then we're saying, well, that just didn't quite work out. He did everything according to the scripture. He did everything according to God's will. But somehow man has just messed this up and this salvation doesn't work. Christ had prayed, let this cup pass, but instead let your will be done. To do such on the cross and to forfeit this salvation is actually a biblical impossibility. God does not fail. God is faithful. He will finish His work and His work is good. 
Romans chapter 9 says this, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenant and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Notice what it said, that Christ came. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Remember that, that's what we're talking about. The word of God hath taken none effect. The possibility, the plausibility that some might take the word might here and say it's a possible salvation when in fact it is a sure salvation because the word of God has, according to his word, taken effect. Likewise, as we recognize that God does not fail, we must admit here that, um, that God does not gamble. God is not sending his son Jesus Christ to go to the cross, to die, to suffer, to be shamed, to take upon himself the burden of sin, this heavy yoke that no other man could take, that he might gamble on possibly saving mankind. That doesn't sound too sure of a salvation. And that certainly doesn't sound like something we could hope in, something we could have faith in. Sending his son was not a, a maybe salvation. Not a maybe this will work. It was sure. Jesus Christ was sent as a propitiation. Plan A where there was no plan B. He would certainly free the brethren because there is a 100% success rate with God's will in Christ. 100%. It's not a number that we're used to with anything else. There are not any other possible outcomes or any other complications with partaking of Christ and putting on Christ's righteousness. There is not anything that could happen except for one thing, that we could be justified before God and that we could partake in what Christ has to offer, that we could inherit what is only Christ and that in that we would have eternal life. That is the only possibility. There's only one side effect of partaking of Christ, and that is holiness. We don't have to worry that we could have this Christ and believe in this Christ and He might save. The only thing that we have to worry about is if we truly believe. And if we do truly believe, there is one side effect, and that is becoming holy. That is being sanctified. If you receive Jesus, believing unto repentance, you will be saved. And you will become holy. And that is a reality. He doesn't fail. This isn't a guess from some mere mortal doctor as to which medication to take to improve your health. We, we have likewise uh, uh, with this analogy, we have a problem. 
We have a sin problem and we need healing and we need help and we need a cure. This is a prescription from the healer, the one who has created you to begin with. He is the cure for the sin problem. He doesn't fail. Consider this passage from Isaiah chapter 55. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Hebrews chapter 1 taught us that God only speaks through Christ. His word, it says in this passage in Isaiah, does not return void. No more powerful statement can it be that this word from John chapter 1 verse 14 is described in this way. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now remember, my word does not return void. And John chapter 1 verse 14 says that Jesus is the word. Jesus does not return void. This is not a possible salvation, but this is a certain salvation. This word who is Jesus shall likewise never fail as the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He certainly didn't return void. Christ came. Christ conquered sin without fail. He is the word and he certainly did not return void. We must get that into our minds. We much, we, we much need to preach and proclaim this is the Christ that has come. A ransom for many. A sure hope. A sure anchor for the soul. A certain salvation psalm chapter 33 verse 6 says by the word of the lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host this is exactly the fulfillment of christ who is the word of god and by whom all things are created and are are all things that are stated are true it's what we see throughout Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. Continually, again and again, we're reminded that this is the Christ. This is the Christ who is the Word. This is the Word who is created. This is the Word who is saved. This is the Word who is bringing and breathing life into the spiritual man. Let us continue in verse 15 to see what else it says. It says, and he might free, we can say he will free, he has freed those who who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. A little bit of a tongue twister there for me. Let's examine those who Christ is freeing. It says, those who through the fear of death. I believe the logical beginning is that we see that men fear death. Now, in its context, the, the epistle is written certainly to the brethren, those who have believed in Jesus Christ, those who have been made regenerate. But I believe that it goes even beyond that. I believe that all men fear death. We're slaves to fear. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells us to not fear. Not, to not fear anyone but God. To not worry. Why? Because the natural propensity of man is to fear. And the, the prescription of the Bible is to do that which is against our human nature because we need to be reminded we're being changed from the inside out. Therefore, we, we recognize that all men fear death. And we, we do remember that this is written to the Jewish people. And they were led astray, as we see. And they were being 
constantly led astray from this gospel. They were neglecting the salvation in Christ that was the freedom from such a burdensome yoke of affliction. And that's where the law comes in that Brother Pat was talking about this morning. By all means, they began to, uh, begin life on a dreaded path to hell. And along its course, the physical death of the body presented such a, a mental torment that men would not only be forced to sin, but they would be uh, forced to con- continue in sin and to completely compound one sin over another because this fear of death, think about how we operate as man. Isn't that what we do? Because we know our time is running out. Well, we want to have this by this age. We want to get this uh, before we're married. We want to have this much money before we have kids. Why? There's death in the back of our minds reminding us that this life is truly but a vapor. But see, there's an issue with the way that people would look at death. Uh, although we do have this uh, scripture to remind us of who to reverently fear instead of death. Our natural man would uh, want to fear the death itself. And we're opposed uh, to this disposition uh, in which we're unreconciled to Christ and we're irreconcilable except through Christ. And we have considered only the death of the body as we're selfish. That's what selfishness is. We're considering only what's happening to us. That's why we want all this stuff. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 says, And do not fear the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. Natural sinful man is so fearful of Satan and the death of the body that we neglect the spirit. We forget the spiritual aspect. We forget the eternal because we're thinking of the limited, the the here and now, the temporal This creates within us this propensity that I'm describing to increasingly sin. Why? Because the desires of the flesh are so great uh, that we continually want all that we can get before our expiration date. It's a reality we all have to deal with. It's a truth that we must be reminded of every day. You think about it. If someone uh, comes and, and steals from us, we get mad. Why? Because that's mine. I wanted that. I worked hard for that. And and when you start to get into your 30s and 40s, you think, man, I better get this and enjoy it while I can because this body's breaking down. I'm not going to be able to use it much longer. We want the lusts of our eyes. The natural carnal man wants his best life in the immediate future. And that's why Joel Osteen has such a great selling book because there he's, he's not speaking to spiritual men but he's speaking to those who are unregenerate. Your best life now, and that's the reality without Christ, that our best life would be now. And we're looking to, to get these things because we are in fear of death and we're subject to slavery. When we fear death, it produces a great power over us and it feeds this idolatrous flesh. We want what we want and we neglect The true work of Christ on the cross. Therefore nothing is submitted to Christ. And whereby nothing is offered to Christ. There is no reverence. There is no glory. There is no honor. There is no praise. There is nothing but selfish, selfish man left for God. 
not only for the man who acknowledges not the God of the Bible, but there's the reality that even these people, these Hebrew people, felt the same way. This is for those to whom the law was given. So we see that every man, even the unregenerate, is under this bondage here. He's thinking of death, but now we have those people to whom the law has been given, and they are really seeing the death. They're seeing the body, uh, the, the body dying because they're, they're getting old, they're getting feeble, and then they have this law and they're seeing every transgression that is punishable by death, and they're saying, oh my goodness, it's coming. What can we do? And this is uh, the irony of the statement. But for to those whom the law was given, transmitted of angels, transmitted of, of God's mouth himself, given to Moses. And with each step, one realized, oh my goodness, we cannot keep this law. We transgress daily, each transgression deserving a just punishment and each transgression deserving death. This is the reality being brought to the forefront of the mind with verse 15. The irony is that there are so many people fixed upon legalism and keeping the law and trying to be righteous of their own selves and being quote-unquote good and, and they're seeing the repercussions from the failures. They failed to remember that the breaking of the law wasn't the severity of the crime. That's not the bad part. It's not that you broke the law. The bad part of the crime is that its commission was against a just and holy God. And the people had forgotten that. They're thinking, oh man, I'm, I'm going to be put to death. I, I stole from my neighbor or, you know, I accidentally killed him or ran over him or whatever. They're thinking all these bad things that they've done. I've committed adultery and I deserve death. Oh, what am I going to do? But they never stopped to consider God. They never stopped to consider the perfect righteousness that he expects. And therefore, when they're thinking of these things, these are people who have been taught this their whole life. They've been brought up in the Jewish tradition. They've been brought up in the synagogues. And they've forgotten that Christ has freedom from the law. Not to excuse them to break the law whenever they want. Not a liberty to transgress. But they've forgotten that there's freedom in Christ. And so they're thinking, oh my goodness, death is coming. But they're never thinking about the God behind the law. They're never thinking against whom have they transgressed. This is very severe. The Hebrew people would forget God, and that is why the, the epistle is written here. They would forget God, and they would fear the death, but they would forget about the judgment. They would forget about everlasting life. They would forget about holding within His reign as the power of Christ to rightly condemn and to rightly justify those who belong to Him. They forgot the torment of hell, for they were thinking simply of a death of the body. It's in a minute way, like a child fearing the belt or the switch more than the parent who controls it. And that's what's happening there. The Hebrew people are more worried about the belt, the punishment, the switch, than they are the God who is bringing that chastisement. I think Romans chapter 7 verse 24 really summarizes the thought of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15. Oh wretched man that I, 
that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? That's what it says. He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Slavery to this earthly thinking of self, selfishness, and lust. It prevents one from being a slavery to righteousness. And it prevents one from exalting Christ uh, for His rightful position that He obtained and that He holds and that was inherently His. We're robbing God when we are serving self. And when we are fearing the punishment rather than the punisher, we are robbing God of His glory. Ironically, He is not only the punisher, but He is the pardoner. And in the quest for self-righteousness, the people receiving this epistle originally were slaves to the law. The law was given, and it was not received with Christ. Nor was the law seen as fulfilled in Christ. Christ was soon forgotten. What a misunderstood law it was if this is the case. How misunderstood was it by these people? If this is the law and we are justified by it, then we are required to keep the whole of it. And the truth is that keeping the whole law would at best only keep us from compounding the wages of sin. For but one transgression deserves hell. So really if they would take a step back and consider what God has decreed, yes, we could keep the law, but if we broke it one time, one small thing, if we told one lie and then we kept the law the rest of our life, the only thing that we have done is stop the compounding condemnation. We still have to deal with the first sin. We still have to deal with Adam's sin. We still have to deal with death. And the day that you eat of the fruit, dying you shall die. Or King James, surely you shall die. One transgression deserves hell. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. The American justice system too many times reveals to us the truth behind the law. The law of God and its inability to justify man before God. Have you ever seen a murderer who is on trial and for some reason maybe he's murdered several people and he receives uh, several life sentences? This is what being justified by the law does. Okay, well you kept the law but you, you still murdered three people so we're going to sentence you to three life sentences but here's the problem. It doesn't matter if you didn't murder number two and three, you still have to deal with number one. And it doesn't matter if the sentences are concurrent or not because the, the fact is that he or she who has committed this crime will never make it past the first sentence. They'll never make it past. Likewise, every punishment that we receive, every sin that we commit against God, it deserves hell. If, there, if we kept the law, it does us no good because we still have to deal with that sin. We still have to deal with the fact that we're headed to hell without Christ. Punishment earned for one crime is enough. But a repeat offender is sentenced with each case. In the case of sin, a repeat offender will be required to live and die 
And then to live again and to die again with every sin if, if the sin is to be paid. It's impossible. We are repeat offenders. And that's the burden and the reality of the laws that's given to the people who, who had received it and then also received Christ and been freed from that but so soon returned like a dog to their vomit to this irreconcilable law, a law that could not reconcile them to God. Broken once, sentenced to death. It's what we have to deal with. Who cares if you're able to keep the law perfectly for one single time you're serving life. Death is the only payment that you can make. We are as mere humans in this case left hopeless. Slaves all our life. And that's what the text literally says. And then I think, but God. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 8. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trans, trans excuse me, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God that no man can boast. So when we look at Hebrews chapter 2, we make it to verses 14 and 15. The message is that man has sinned, and that Christ has lived a perfect and righteous life. And that He alone has the power over death, the power over Satan. He alone can pardon. He alone is the justifier. There's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. There is no other hope. Our hope is built on nothing less, as we've seen, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But what we need to be reminded of Anytime that we look into the Scriptures and then we see that Christ is a sufficient sacrifice, we have to ask ourselves, do we see ourselves as the sinners the Bible describes us as? Do we, for the, the ill word that we speak to our spouse or to our neighbor, do we feel that we deserve death? Because if we don't, we haven't seen Christ for what He's done. We must be burdened by sin to the point that it brings us to our knees, that it drives us to the cross because we say, yes, we've sinned, yes, we've said something ugly, we've had a bad thought, we've stolen, we've cheated, we've lied, and because of that we deserve hell. But the fire is quenched by the blood of Christ. Our sentence stayed. He is our propitiation. In Him we trust. In Him we live. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Are we trusting in Christ? Or are we trusting in self? It's really what's being asked of the penman of the Hebrews. You've been given this law 
by which a promise is made of God and you haven't been able to keep it. You've only brought condemnation upon yourself because you're trusting in your own works. But there is a greater sacrifice. There is a sufficient sacrifice. There is a great and final covenant that is the covenant of God's Son, the covenant in His blood that is sure to save and you are trusting in it for in it is true salvation. The simple gospel. Man can do nothing. God has done everything. How do we respond to that gospel? Is it by faith and repentance? Or is it simply for fear of death? Are we reverencing God? Or are we scared of punishment? That is the question. The answer is that Jesus Christ has paid it all. All to Him I owe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come before You once again. Lord, we just thank You for the blood of Christ. It is able to cover, cover every sin and every transgression. Lord, that we no longer need an a merely earthly priest to, to bring a sacrifice and then as we sin again to bring another sacrifice and another. But we have a great high priest who is King of kings and Lord of lords and His sacrifice is sufficient. He is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb whose blood is so pure, who is so perfect, who is without spot, who is without blemish, that He alone can cover the multitude of sins. God, our minds cannot comprehend such a great sacrifice. But we come to you this morning, Lord, in worship and in praise, thanking you that this is a truth that we don't have to completely understand, but that we can trust that Jesus has done what he said he's done. God, that your word is not returned void, that you say that salvation is sure and that we believe and have life in his name. God, we thank you and we pray that anyone would hear this message lord and who's yet to bend the knee and profess that jesus christ is lord we pray that the power of your spirit uh, would enter upon them lord and that uh, their will would be opposed and that they would be conformed to the image of christ and repent unto salvation lord and that they would continue to make disciples and to proclaim the good news of jesus christ lord as we go forward with the meal lord we thank you for it we ask that you would bless it Lord, we ask that you would bless it insofar as that we would be uh, pacified in our hunger so that we would still desire to be in your house. Lord, to hear the message of the cross and to worship you. We thank you for all of your wonderful blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.